listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. This is the evening sermon for Sunday, April 30th, 2017. All right, well, open your Bibles. Uh, you can just go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. <laughs> I mean, you can really turn to Genesis 1, but... Tonight we're going to talk about worship and when pastor john gave me the opportunity to speak to you on a sunday night i i couldn't think of something that i really just wanted to go to except that i thought about the uh idea of christian worship and it occurred to me to look in the packer book that we have have just finished 18 words and i ought to write to uh, the illustrious godly dr packer and request that if there's ever a revision of the book, that it seems that worship would be a good word (laughs) to put in there, right? As Christians, as human beings, we want to worship something. And so especially when we think about Christian doctrine and Christian teaching in the Bible, surely the center of the whole thing is worship. And so tonight we're going to do the 19th word in the book, 18 words, and I'm going to add this word worship before we begin let's pray thank you lord for this night and we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to hear you speak to us i ask that as we pause now to look at the teaching the biblical doctrine of worship i ask that you by your holy spirit would strengthen us and enable us to understand what we read and that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us here in your word we ask all these things in jesus name So the idea of worship, worship in this, the literal definition of the word, Pastor John taught us last Sunday, comes from a Middle English word that just simply means to ascribe worth or value to something. So when we're worshiping, we are ascribing or attributing worth and value and praise to something. We're saying that whatever we're worshiping, that we're saying that that thing is worthy to receive adoration and respect and praise and reverence and honor. And so we come to Christian worship, and we're talking about the worship of God, the worship of whatever is divine, spiritual worship. We're talking about the worship of God. Now, the biblical connotation for worship, from which we get that word that's worthy of worship, something to ascribe glory and honor to, when you see the word worship in the Bible, it's more often associated with falling down before something. As if you were to kneel or even lower to fall prostrate in front of something, whether it was an idol, the false god Baal would have been worshipped in this way, or whether it was an idol that was crafted by the silversmiths in the book of Acts. To worship the thing would have been not only to ascribe glory and honor to it with words, but to resume or assume a posture of worship with your body and with your heart of bowing down or falling down before something. So when you would approach a king, there would be a certain amount of worship that would take place as you knelt before the king and then waited on his invitation to rise and uh, interact with the king. And that was an act of worship, falling down before the king, paying homage and reverence to the king for who he is. And so we would transport all that stuff into the biblical connotation, the biblical idea of worship of God, and that's what we get. We see ascribing value, ascribing worth and honor and glory and reverence to God. Because he is the ruler of the world, the ruler of the universe. He is the creator. 
he's holy, he's righteous, all those things that we can attribute to him, and we do attribute those things to him because he's worthy of them. He's worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power and wisdom and might and strength because he is glorious and holy and righteous and perfect and loving. And we can go on and on and on and on, ascribing these things to God, and that's an attitude of worship. But then we say, okay, what do we do in response to him being worthy of these things? What is the attitude and the response of worship? In a physical sense, you can literally bow down before the Lord. You could fall prostrate in your bedroom and worship the Lord in that way. The Bible gives us many physical ways in which we can worship the Lord. We can lift our hands to the Lord. Yes, even Baptists can lift their hands to the Lord in worship. It could be just a moment of heartfelt adoration and praise while you're singing a song as we've done tonight. In your heart and your mind and your soul and yes, even sometimes with your body, there's an expression of worship that comes as an overflow of who God is and what he has done. And that is the idea of biblical worship. Well, we're talking about Christian worship. We might ask the question, where did worship begin? We think about biblical New Testament Christian worship. Where did it start? Acts 2, maybe? The Holy Spirit descends and fills the disciples and they're, they're there and they're doing more Pentecostal stuff like speaking in tongues and, and, and declaring the gospel with boldness and with power. I'm sure there was some worship going on there in Acts 2, this first Christian New Testament worship service. I, I don't think it began there. Did it begin in the Psalms when God gives these songs to Moses and David and the sons of Asaph and Solomon and they were writing these songs down, these hymns of the Old Testament? Is that where worship began? Or did worship begin at creation? As God places the planets into orbit and launches every star into the sky and then the angels sing to him and then he creates the animals and mankind. Is that where worship started? Well, I'm going to posit to you tonight that worship actually starts in eternity past and here's a fun thing when we talk about eternity past we can't say the word starts we can't even say the word past because eternity in itself is timeless so worship really had no beginning it has just always been and you say well how is that so when there was no creation well get this God has always existed in three persons Father, Son and Holy Spirit and from eternity past, they have existed co-equally, glorifying one another, enjoying one another's presence, loving one another, finding joy in one another. There was never a time when there was not perfect holy communion and fellowship in the persons of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we're going to stop and ask where did worship start, we actually have to say it didn't actually have a beginning. It has always been because God has always been. And he has always existed in three persons that enjoy being with one another. And they bring glory and honor and reverence and respect and love to one another. And isn't that what worship is all about? And so worship proceeds out of the Trinity. Worship then proceeds into creation. Because the Bible says when God created the world, the morning stars sang together with joy. The angels worshipped as God was creating. Even when he created the angels, he created the angels as a spiritual being of worship and service and ministry to him. And we know the seraphim and the cherubim bring glory and honor to God. So there was that 
dimension of worship. And then the created dimension of worship. And then he creates man. And in Genesis 1, he says, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1.27, doesn't he? And what's part of that? What do you think, what do you think going, is going on in the mind and the heart of God when he says, let us create man in our image? It's not explicitly teaching the Trinity there, but it's interesting that there's a plurality of persons, isn't it? That the one God says, let us make man in our image. And we have to see that part of that image that he's creating man into is this ability to fellowship and have relationship to God. And how is that part of his image? Well, because he's always been that way himself, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he creates man and says, man, you are now part of this intricate, eternal communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, in Luke 3.38, you don't have to turn there. When Luke is giving his genealogy of Jesus Christ, he goes all the way back to Adam. And throughout that first, actually the fourth chapter in Luke, third chapter in Luke, Luke is saying so-and-so, his father was so-and-so, and he was the son of so-and-so, and he was the son of so-and-so, and he was the son of so-and-so. He goes backwards from Jesus back to Adam. And when he gets to Adam, with no other father to turn to, he says, and then there was Adam, the son of God. And this is not capital S, Jesus, son of God. But you see the inter- intimate relationship that God had with his creation, that Adam was called the son of God. Little s. Made in the image and the likeness of God, to bring glory and honor to God. In Revelation 4, in fact, we read that whole idea. You don't have to turn there either. I'm going to cite a lot of passages. So if you want to turn there, you can, and I'll tell you when to turn to the places I want you to turn to. In Revelation 4, we see the the throne room in heaven, and we're going to return here later tonight. But they say, worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive honor and blessing, glory and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. So God creates to bring glory to himself. He created mankind to bring worship and honor and glory to himself. And so we start with Adam. But then we encounter a huge problem, don't we, in Genesis 3. And there's a little halt put on the worship process in the Garden of Eden. And that, of course, is the fall. Really, it happened before that, didn't it? In heaven, in eternity past, at some point, when Lucifer said in his heart, I will be like God. You know what happened in Lucifer's heart in that moment? He stopped worshiping God and sought worship for himself. So from the very beginning, the problem has been a problem of worship. When Adam and Eve fall, what did Satan say to them that caused Eve to stumble? He said, you shall be like God. It was the same trick he used when he fell. You, Eve, can be like God. And you can receive the glory and honor and the power and the praise. It was the same thing that caused him to fall so far. After the fall, Cain and Abel, the first worship wars, recorded in history at least, as they're bringing their sacrifices before the Lord, and Abel brings a pleasing sacrifice of a a young lamb from his flock, and all the fatty portions and everything the Bible says that made it so good, and it was a sweet aroma to the Lord. And then Cain, a farmer, brings a batch of crops to the Lord. And for whatever reason, the sacrifice isn't accepted. And God honors Abel's sacrifice, but he doesn't honor Cain's sacrifice. And Cain is jealous, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And worship is stopped. 
the brakes are put on yet again. And we kind of see this, this uh, snowball effect start to happen in those first six chapters of Genesis. With the problem of sin, the problem of the fall, and then it becomes a problem of worship. So we see that the big problem here from the very beginning, right? The big problem is sin. There is a worship problem because there's a sin problem. And there's a sin problem because, you guessed it, there's a worship problem. And the cycle just goes on and on and on and on and on throughout the Old, old Testament. Sin affects worship. Bad worship creates sin. So now let's move on. This is kind of my first big point. Uh, worship in the Old Testament. We'll call this pre-Israel. Okay, we've already kind of been there in, uh, in the Genesis in the fall, but now we're going post-fall. Okay, Genesis 3.15, look at that with me. Genesis 3.15, this is after the fall, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God has come and found them, and then he begins this conversation with them about the curses. He placed the curse on, uh, he places the curse on the, the ground, he curses relationships, he curses uh, that man will have to do work and labor to eat. But then he says this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know by now that from me and Pastor John that this is what is called the first gospel. The first kind of promise of redemption from the fall that's just messed everything up. That even in the curse of sin and the fall, God is telling them, but this won't last forever. I will send the seed of a woman, that's an interesting terminology, isn't it? The seed of a woman to bruise the head of the serpent who has caused this problem with worship by causing this problem with sin. But even while hope is promised, we see mankind driven from the garden. What was the garden? It was the presence of God, the intimate, close fellowship with God. Does that sound familiar, like the Trinity? But mankind is driven out because of his sin. No more close walks with God in the cool of the day because he sinned and God cannot be in the presence of sin. Driven away from the tree of life. Was one of the consequences wasn't as they were driven out of Eden. Look at verse 24 of chapter 3. He drove man and uh, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, you cannot partake anymore of the tree of life. You cannot come anymore into God's presence in the way that you used to. Back in Genesis 3:10, though, we see something remarkable. Even before we got to that wonderful promise of redemption in 3.15, I think this is probably the first gospel. In Genesis 3.10, mankind is naked. We see God saying, I heard the, or man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I hid because I was afraid. I was naked and I hid myself. There's this understanding of shame, sin. We've messed up and now we realize we're naked and we're hiding from God. And I say this is the first gospel because it leads us into these things. Now, this is what I want you to pick up on tonight. If you don't leave with anything else, pick up on this pattern, okay? Separation from God, called by God, redeemed by God, and covered by God. So, in this instance, what separated man from God? Sin, the fall. And he's hiding. He's away from the presence of God. And then after that, he's removed from the presence of God. So sin, shame, death, disobedience, rebellion, animosity, hostility, those are the thing that, things that mark our relationship with God because of the fall and because of sin. But then God acts, and what does he come and say? He's walking in the cool of the garden, and he invites man out. 
where are you, Adam? And it's not that God didn't know where Adam was, obviously. This is an invitation. Adam, what's wrong? What, what's caused this rift in the relationship? Come out and face it. That's an invitation by God. And now here's the, what's so great, uh, gracious about that is that God could have destroyed Adam and Eve right there. And there could have been no mankind, and I'm going to start over again with something completely different. But the fact that he engages with this sinful, fallen, now his enemy, and he says, Adam, where are you? And he invites us into this conversation with him. But then we see that he is redeemed by God, that mankind is redeemed by God. Look in Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You ever looked at that and thought, well, that's the gospel too. There's sin and shame and separation. They're about to be driven out of the garden, but God has promised this deliverance. There's this problem between man and God, but now God has called them out of the darkness and into the light for a conversation. And he curses the serpent instead of the people. And then he clothes their sin and their shame and their nakedness by killing an animal and covering them with his skin. That's reconciliation. And then they're covered by God as he provides this covering for them. So see that pattern, okay? Let's move on into Israel. In Genesis 12, you can turn there if you like. It's just simply the story of Abram. Abram is a pagan. He lives in a pagan land. His father, fathers are pagan people. His grandfathers are pagan people. They worship false gods. There's no indication that he worshiped the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out. Why he didn't call Jim Bob down the street in Ur, I don't know. Or the other guy down there. He might have been better at something than Abram was. For whatever reason, God sets his unconditional love on Abram. And he says, Abram, come out of where you are. Come this way. Go to where I'm going to show you. Not only that, but then he makes a promise. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your children great. I'm going to make your offspring great. And the offspring that comes from you is going to be a blessing to all people. That's an invitation, isn't it? Sin, separation, idolatry, pagan worship, but God calls him out. And then God redeems him. And then God provides for him. This is, this is the, the thing. This is worship. And then we have Isaac, the child of promise. And then we have Jacob and Esau. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. He says, because you've striven with God, you've fought with God, I'm going to call your name Israel. And this blessing that he made to Abraham goes to Isaac. And that blessing goes to Jacob. Should have gone to Esau, right? Goes to Jacob. Then there's Joseph and the famine, the 12 tribes of Israel. They go to Egypt. And you remember what happens in Egypt, right? They're there. They have, they've escaped the famine. God has preserved his people through Joseph's wisdom. But while they're there, what happens? A king arises in Egypt that doesn't know Joseph. Maybe centuries later. And he gets scared because the Israelites, the Hebrews, are growing in number. God's fulfilling his promise, right? Offspring. As many as the sands and the sea and the stars and the sky. They're multiplying and Egypt becomes nervous and he puts them into slavery. Slavery is separation. Slavery is bondage. Slavery is shame. 
being controlled and ruled by something or someone else. But in the midst of their slavery, God calls a man named Moses. And in Exodus chapter 3, in fact, turn to Exodus chapter 3 with me. God calls Moses to go to the land of Egypt, to go to his people, and to ask or demand their release. And I want you to see God's reasoning for wanting his people released. Exodus 3, 12. God says, I'll be with you when you go to Egypt, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now look at verse 18. Go to Egypt, tell Pharaoh to bring the people out, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. What's the purpose of God calling Moses to go get the people out and bring them? Out of their separation, out of their bondage, God has called them and invited them out into the wilderness to do what? To meet with him. To worship him, to offer sacrifices to him. There's that pattern, isn't it? God inviting his people to come and worship him. And how does he do it? He then provides for them. The Passover lamb is killed. The blood is on the doorpost. The angel of death passes over. The people are freed. God is provided. God is reconciled. There's the pattern. The people are released. They go out to the wilderness. They worship God. And then God says, I want you to do something for me, Moses. I want you to build me a place to meet with my people in. The tabernacle. And Exodus 25 through 40, almost 15 whole chapters are devoted solely to the construction of the tabernacle and the colors of the curtains and the size of the furniture and the material for the furniture and what kind of gold is to cover this altar and what kind of gold and artsmiths are supposed to come and make this altar. 15 chapters worth of instruction on what to do. What's this tabernacle all about? a mobile dwelling place for God as they wandered through the wilderness. Did God need a tent to live in? Absolutely not. God needed no little tent to live in. Who's benefit? Who is benefiting from the tabernacle? God as if he needed a place to be with them? No, the people were benefiting from the tabernacle. This was God's gracious allowance of his people to see and to know that he is in their midst. Because literally the tent of meeting was to be in the middle of the camp of the 12 tribes. So there's this unmistakable visual that our God is in our midst. That he is holy and righteous and just and he could strike us dead at any moment because we're sinners. Nevertheless, he comes to us and wants to be in the middle of us. That's what the tabernacle represents. We go into Leviticus. When you get there reading your Bible, you might want to put the brakes on it and start reading a little slower. Why is this happening? Why is God so particular about this stuff? Does he really even want us to worship him? Why is there this restriction on this and this restriction and don't eat this and don't do this and don't wear that? And when you come here, you better wash this. And when you go out, change your clothes and wash again and come back. Why is all this stuff in Leviticus? Why did the priests have to do this strict ritual? Before approaching the Lord. And we might be tempted to look at it and say, God doesn't want us to worship him. He put too many restrictions on it. Do you understand that he didn't have to do anything at all? He didn't have to reveal himself to anybody. Let alone let them come to him and worship him. But he says, I want my people to worship him 
to worship me. But in order for that to happen, because I'm holy and because my holiness will literally lash out and kill sinners if they come in my presence, there's going to have to be this ritualistic way of approaching me at this time. There's going to have to be bloodshed. There's going to have to be these walls and these barriers and these curtains and these veils and this altar and that altar. Why? Because he's a holy God. And the worship of a holy God can never be flippant or relaxed or casual. When that happens in the Old Testament, people die. You understand this? Nadab and Abihu thought they were going to offer some different kind of fire, whatever that means. Strange fire to the Lord. So they go in and start burning this weird incense that God has not commanded them to burn. And guess who gets up, ends up being burned? Nadab and Abihu. Really quickly, God takes them and burns them alive right where they are. And we say, good grief, is God serious about worship? Yes, but he also loves worship. He says, come to me, but be careful to come in the way that I've told you. Not because I hate you, because I want you to come and not die. <laughs> Do you understand? God wants us to come. God wants them to come to him. But I want you to notice something very interesting. Turn over to Exodus 25. If you're not already there, Exodus 25, 18 through 19, something that appears in the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 19, 18. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. This is on the Ark of the Covenant. There's, there were to be these two cherubs. Make one cherub on one end, the other on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. So if you can imagine the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You kind of have this visual that there were these cherubim. And we don't know what their wings were doing. But there was this idea that they were kind of the, the stationary guards on the mercy seat. That there was this visual representation that these angelic beings guarded the presence of God. Interesting thing about God's presence being guarded. Who are they shielding? Are they shielding the people from God? Shielding God from the people? I think they were shielding the people from God. That although they were guarding the throne, they were guarding the throne not for God's sake, but for the people's sake. That they're not consumed by his holiness and his glory. Look in Exodus 26, verses 31 through 33. Exodus 26, verses 31 through 33. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twinen, twined at linen, and it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So this was the veil that was separating the holy place where only priests could go from the holiest place, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go in that once a year. And that's where the mercy seat was. That's where the two cherubim were covering the mercy seat, the ark of the testimony. And then on the veil itself, what are they to weave into the tapestry? More cherubim. Now, if you recall, Genesis 3.24, mankind is removed from the garden. And what does God put there guarding the tree of life? 
cherubim and a flaming sword. So just put that kind of in your, your thinking cap for a minute. We're going to come back to that way later. This is a representation of separation. There's veils, there's curtains, there's guarded presence of God there in the temple, the tabernacle. Then we move on to the temple. Temple is just a permanent version of the tabernacle. Tabernacle wandered with the people. They could fold it up, take it down, move it as God had told them to move it to the next place. Temple, when they came into the land, after the reign of David had ended, actually under Solomon, the temple is constructed. In 2 Chronicles 3 through 5, you read about Solomon building the temple. This is God's permanent dwelling with the people. And again, just like the tabernacle, the temple stood there in the middle of the city, atop, atop a high hill, Mount Zion, to represent what? God's presence with his people. It's a place of worship. It's a place where God says, yes, all the nations come to me. Worship me in the way that I tell you. Second Chronicles 7. Let's turn there very quickly too. Second Chronicles 7. Second Chronicles 7 starting in verse 1. This is, um, the temple is complete. Solomon has prayed a prayer of dedication and blessing over the temple. And then chapter 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Now when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down, that's worship, their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Do you know where this has happened before? If you were to go back to Exodus 40 and the tabernacle is completed and we're about to end the whole book of Exodus, how does it end but with the glory of the Lord coming down visibly and filling the tabernacle in the same way that it fills the temple? And what is God saying to the people? The people understand it. God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love, covenant faithfulness. Who's covenant faithfulness? God's to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the people of Israel. That's what the temple represented to these people. The glory of God in our midst. The worship of a holy God who has made promises, who is faithful to keep those promises, who has loved us, who has loved our fathers, who has loved our grandfathers, who loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and have brought us into this promised land and given us this place where we poor, wretched sinners can come to him and worship him. That's what the temple represented to these people. It wasn't just a building to them. This was the literal dwelling place of the glory of God. Briefly, I want to mention the prophets. Moving to the prophets throughout the ages of the kings, David, Solomon, and their sons, and their son, and their son, the prophets were working. And what did God call the prophets to do? Go and tell my people to repent. Their worship is empty. You know, the prophets talk about worship a lot. Whether it's Isaiah or Amos. Amos is one of my favorite passages on worship. I think it's Amos 5. Amos from the Lord is saying, stop singing your songs. Stop celebrating your holy days. It's nothing more than noise to me, and your sacrifices are a stench in my nostrils. Why? Because your heart is far from me. 
This was the job of the prophets, to call the people back to the true heart of worship, which is obedience. Yes, do the sacrifices. Yes, observe the feasts. Do the rituals. Do the ceremonies. God commanded them for a reason. But if you take out the heart of worship, then all you have left is empty religious exercise. And there's nothing tied to it. And that was the job of the prophets. Now, it's our last stop in the Old Testament. Turn to the book of Malachi. I don't want you to miss the, the grace of God in the Old Testament. We, we often view the sacrifices and these restrictions and these rituals and these ceremonies, we often view them in a negative light because of the Pharisees. And we're very used to Jesus getting on to the Pharisees because of their traditionalism and their ritualism. But the problem wasn't the traditions, it was the traditionalism. The problem wasn't the rituals, it was the ritualism. That the Pharisees had made it all about the outward external things and had abandoned the heart of worship. But the external still meant something. And there in the Old Testament, when you have the sacrificial system, God is painting a picture for his people. It sounds terrible to us to think about doves and lambs and rams and sheep executed every single day. And blood running down the steps of the temple. And that sounds disgusting to us. But to those people, it would have been beautiful. Because it was the representation that God has wiped away and is forgiving our sins. Right there in the middle of the book of Leviticus, which is, seems so cold and dry and ritualistic. We read about the day of atonement. And what this whole thing was all about. God says once a year the high priest comes in and sprinkles blood on the altar. First he cleanses himself and then he goes into the Holy of Holies where he makes a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And God says I wipe their sins away. Don't miss the sweetness of this worship in the Old Testament. That although there are ceremonies and rituals and rituals and regulations and there's the law and there's do this and not this and wear this and not this and bathe and do this. You understand, from the, remember that God didn't have to do any of it. But he tells them how to do it so that they can honor him and enjoy his presence and receive forgiveness from their sins. Malachi comes as this last from the Old Testament prophets and he's telling us where this is all going. Where is all this worship going? The priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the, and he will purify the sons of Levi. You know who those people are? That's the priests. And refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. God is telling his prophet Malachi, there's coming a day when I'm going to remove the sin and the shame and the, the, the blot of sin from my people. So that the priesthood will be pure. 
Their sacrifices will be pure and acceptable and holy. And when does he say these days are coming? When the messenger of the Lord comes, the messenger of the new covenant. And how fitting is it then that we turn the page, and you can literally turn the page because we're going to Matthew. That Jesus comes on the scene as the messenger of this new and better covenant. And what does Matthew say about Jesus from the offset in Matthew 1.1? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Immediately tying Jesus to that Old Testament story. The tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the kingship, the prophets. The worship, the sacrifices, everything. Matthew has just in one sentence tied Jesus to every single piece of it because he said he's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. No bigger covenants in the Old Testament are there than the ones God made with Abraham and the ones God made with David. And Matthew in one seemingly insignificant verse says Jesus is what all that was about. Jesus says in John four twenty four to the woman at the well, the hour is coming and even now is. And the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus comes to fix our sin problem. And if you remember what, about our sin problem, we have a sin problem and we have a worship problem. We have a worship problem and we have a sin problem. Jesus comes to fix our sin problem. Guess what happens when he fixes our sin problem? He fixes our worship problem. And as he fixes our worship problem, guess what else gets fixed? Our sin problem. And Jesus says to the woman at the well, I am the Christ, and my job has been from eternity to make a people fit to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I just want you to listen to this, this little pattern as we walk through it. In Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, really the last of the old covenant prophets. He said, prepare the way for the Lord, and then here comes Jesus. Matthew 4, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Why is that there? Why the temptation? Why did Jesus go to get And Why do we read about it? Who else was tempted by Satan but failed? Adam and Eve. Jesus faces a similar temptation, three of them to be exact, and succeeds every single time. What Adam could not do, Jesus comes to do. What the first Adam failed at, the second Adam succeeds at. And then Jesus in Matthew 4, 17, coming out of that temptation, coming out of this test, showing that he is the new, greater, and better Adam, comes out of it in Matthew 4, 17, and says, the kingdom of heaven is here. Could there be any more shocking statement than the kingdom of God himself is here? And then in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. Now, not only does that mean that Jesus came to perfectly obey the Ten Commandments, because that's what we think when we think law. Jesus was saying, I came to fulfill every single aspect of the Old Testament. You name it, Jesus is the fulfillment. Israel, Jesus the promised land, Jesus, the temple, Jesus, the tabernacle, Jesus, the veil, Jesus, the sacrifices, Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus. You just go on and on and on and on and on, and it all points to Jesus. And that's the entire point of the book of Hebrews. You people want to go back to what you used to do in the temple. Well, you don't want to wake up and realize that the reality of that is standing right in front of you in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing to go back to, the author says. 
The fulfillment of the thing has come. If you go back to what only represented the actual thing, then all you're doing is chasing after shadows and there's nothing there. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that stuff we've just been talking about throughout the entire Old Testament. John 1.14, turn there and read that with me. Pastor John, a couple weeks ago, was in John 1. We hit on this, but I want to return to it because it's so key to understanding why Jesus came. Wonderful words, and we read them every Christmas. Let's wrap our minds around what's really there. The word Jesus became flesh. And Pastor John pointed out to us that when it says he dwelt among us, the word is literally he tabernacled among us. And guess what we see? The glory of God. Remember the temple? Remember the tabernacle? The dwelling place of God? What happens? The glory of God fills it. Here comes Jesus. And John chooses the word tabernacled with us. And we see his glory. Look at John 2.19. We were just here last week on Sunday morning. Jesus refers to himself here. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, the Pharisees and the religious leaders here, they think he's talking about the physical temple. But it says that Jesus was talking about his body. We're seeing familiar pictures. We're seeing familiar things from the Old Testament get tied to Jesus. John 1, 29 and 36, what does John the Baptist call Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Colossians 2, 9, what does Paul say about Jesus? In him all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Jesus is like a walking temple of God. He is the embodiment of the tabernacle and the temple. Now watch this. If you were to turn to the book of Hebrews, which you don't have to, listen. Christ is our great high priest. Hebrews 9 through 10. Christ is the second and greater Adam. Romans 5 through 7. Christ is our great sacrifice, Hebrews 9 through 10. Christ is the veil that was torn for us, Hebrews 10. Now look at what Jesus comes to do. What's there? What's the problem? Separation from God, sin. What does Jesus come to do? He comes to call. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. What does he say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Separation, there's a call, there's redemption, there's reconciliation in Christ. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul says he's torn down the wall of hostility when he died on the cross and he's made us both one. Not just Jews and Gentiles together and we're happy, but mankind with a holy and righteous God has been reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have been covered by God, Romans three twenty-five, that he sent Jesus to be a propitiation. An atoning sacrifice. That should ring lots of bells from Leviticus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Where there was separation, God issued an invitation. And then he sent reconciliation in Christ. And then he sends his provision through his blood. And it gets even better than that. The temple is restored. I'm not talking about an earthly physical temple that they're collecting materials for right now. I don't know if that's even happening. But the temple is restored. 
Malachi said that there would be a Levitical priesthood that would be purified. He said they will offer sacrifices to the Lord. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 very quickly. 1 Peter 2. Look at what Peter says about the, the priesthood and the temple. Peter says to you, believers, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know what Peter has just said, using Old Testament language, as a Jewish man, that you as a believer, Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter, you are living stones in the temple that Christ is building by his Holy Spirit. Not only that, but you are a holy priesthood for God. And you offer spiritual sacrifices to God. There's Malachi 3 fulfilled in a nutshell. It's fulfilled in this room right now. As we have come together as living stones, making a dwelling place for God by our praise and our worship, the Holy Spirit being here in our midst. And we're offering him a pure sacrifice of praise and worship, not because we're perfect and that we're so great, but because the blood of Jesus covers us and we're able now to offer this pure sacrifice of praise. Why else would Paul say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that now our reasonable act of worship is to do what? To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God that is holy and acceptable. Let's move on lastly, and this is my shortest point, I promise. Worship in eternity. Turn over to Revelation chapter 4. Old Testament worship, New Testament worship, worship in eternity. If you just peruse Revelations, uh, Revelation 4 through 5, those two chapters, you see this scene of the, the throne room in heaven. Look at... I love the Bible. Revelation 4.1. What do we see here except an invitation? He heard a voice like a trumpet and he said to me, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And what do we see? We see, we see 24 elders. We see the throne of God. We see flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder in verse 5. We see a sea like glass in verse 6. We see around the throne, there's these living creatures that are full of eyes. We see four living creatures around the throne. Verse 8, and each of them have six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the elders fall down and cast their crowns before the living God. And in verse 11, they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5, verse 6, we see the lamb standing as if it had been slain. And there's a scroll given, and no one can open the scroll. But the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And in verse 9, they sing a new song to the lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. There's reconciliation. There's provision. There's covering. You ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them what? A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then verse 11, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor 
and power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures fall down and say, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And can you imagine what would have been going through John's mind as he snaps out of this vision. And he realizes that he has just been offered a glimpse into eternity. The unadulterated, pure, holy worship of God and his son. And John has afforded this opportunity, and we're the lucky ones because we get to read about it. And we hear the cry of what? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. That's worship. You are worthy. You are worth praise and honor and glory and power. Here in the throne room, there's no distractions. There's, there's not a concentration on so-and-so over there or so-and-so over here. Sure, John is seeing all these things, but his attention is fixed on the throne of God. A little thing about worship here. When worship mirrors worship in eternity, the focus is clear. The content is clear. You see how much gospel is packed into these songs in Revelation? The reason is clear. You've redeemed us. You've ransomed us. We are your people now. And the response is clear. Honor and glory and blessing be to our God and to the Lamb forever and ever and ever. As hard as it is to believe, it gets better than that. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. The new Jerusalem. This is the ultimate reality. Look at verse 11 here. This wonderful city coming down from God. What, is, what does this city have in it? Verse 11. It has the glory of God. We've seen that before tonight just a few times, haven't we? Verse 14. The foundations are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 22, this is odd, isn't it? We're talking about worship in the new Jerusalem, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I was listening to a preacher I love named Sinclair Ferguson at a conference recently on the idea of worship, and he said, you know why there's no temple in the new Jerusalem? Because it's all temple. The whole thing is temple. And I'm about to come out of my skin right now. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. I'm breathing. I'm breathing. This is back where we started from. You think, you think this is just coincidence? Revelation 22, 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything called accursed, separation, sin, no more. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
His servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Do you miss this? Don't miss it. The river of life, the tree of life, there's fruit and there's no curses. You know what this is? This is Eden. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is back to page one. As if the other stuff was just a bad dream. No wonder God says, behold, I'm making all things new. Here in this new Eden, remember the cherubim? What were they there doing in the garden? Blocking the way to the tree of life rather blocking the holiness of God from killing Adam and Eve. What were the cherubim doing on the mercy seat, shielding the presence of God from the people? What were the cherubim doing on the veil as a, a representation of God's separation from his people? Even though he loves them, he cannot be in their direct presence or they will die. And don't miss that in chapter 22, verse 1 of Revelation. Who's doing the inviting? An angel. That in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth, when all things are the way they're supposed to be, there's no more guarding, no more veiling of God. But even the angels say, come and see what I will show you. And don't miss verse 4. They will see his face. And instead of dropping dead on the sight, their names, his name will be on their forehead. No more running from God like Adam. No more separation from God. No more guarding. But we will be with him and we will reign with him. I'm going to close with just a quick word about corporate worship. And believe it or not, what we've just gone through is a whole biblical theology of what worship is all about. But you might be sitting there thinking, well, what in the world does that have to do with what we do? We're coming together and singing and praying and eating juice and bread and baptizing and listening to sermons and, and, and carrying on. What, is, what does all that have to be? What does that have to do with anything? Listen as I read to you from Hebrews chapter 12. You don't have to follow along with me, just listen. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So this is the author of Hebrews recounting the time God descended on the mountain and the people were terrified and God said, don't even come near the mountain. Remember that holiness will lash out. And the author of Hebrews is, is wonderful. He's telling us, you haven't come to that. The stuff that can be touched, a temple and sacrifices and a literal priesthood and, and all this stuff. Verse 22, you believers have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we dare ask what corporate worship is all about. How many of us would say, man, if I could have seen Solomon's temple, oh man, I would have a worship experience. If I could just go to the Holy Land where Jesus walked, if I could just touch the walls of the empty tomb, I would, I would, I would really have this worship experience. Do you know that you have something more sure and more steadfast and more confirmed sitting in this room right now than if you were to walk with Jesus himself on the earth when he was here? Because now the fulfillment of all of this has come to pass. He's died. He's risen. He's ascended to the Father. You now have the Holy Spirit. We're now the living temple. We're now the priesthood. And we gather together as his people. And it's not just us gathering, Lord, according to the author of Hebrews. But there's innumerable angels in festal gathering already worshiping him. And we come to the assembly of the firstborn, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, and to his blood. Every single time we come together, that is the substance of our worship service. That it's not just singing songs and praying prayers and going through this and going through that and then listening to some guy talk for an hour, and almost an hour, and then have an invitation time and then go home and forget all about it. But we have an encounter with the living God. And I love how the author puts this little warning on the end. Yes, you may come boldly through Christ. You may come confident in your salvation, but come respectfully. For our God is a consuming fire. There's a woman that comes to Jesus in Luke 7. And in the story, Jesus is sitting there with the disciples and some religious leaders. And this woman who is coming out of a life of of sexual sin and immorality. She comes to Jesus and she begins to anoint him with this costly perfume in an alabaster box. Very expensive. And Simon and some of the others have a problem with it. Furthermore, she gets a little weird and she starts to cry on Jesus' feet. Tears drop down on his feet. And Jesus accepts it. She begins to dry his feet with her hair. And if we would be sitting there, we'd probably think the same thing. What in the world is this woman doing? Jesus silences the naysayers. Says, think about it this way. Who has more to be thankful for? Someone who's forgiven of very much or someone who's just forgiven of very little? Now, this woman is being forgiven of much. And it is just a drop in the bucket of what Jesus deserves to receive his costly oil. Tears of thankfulness and gratitude coming down on his feet. 
And the disciples sit there with crossed arms, not believing what they're seeing because why would she waste that? Why would she do this? And I remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. God could have killed you. He should have killed you. You should be in hell right now. But he says, come. How do we come except through the blood of the Lord Jesus? And we should come as people knowing more than any other person on the face of the earth what's in our own hearts and what's in our own life so that a broken alabaster jar and a costly perfume and tears from our faces and drying feet with our hair does not sound costly. It doesn't sound like enough to repay Jesus for what he's done for us. Thankfully, that's the song we get to sing for all eternity. Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. God for this hour of worship thank you for the gift of worship and Lord as we, we prepare to sing a song of response of praise to you I ask that you would even in this moment begin to change our hearts about what worship is all about we will indeed tonight bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you would require. Help us, Lord, indeed to return to the heart of worship and to pour out our perfume on you freely. And not only tonight, but as we leave this place and go into the world so that we might be a sweet aroma to the world of the presence of the glory of God in Christ. I ask these things in Jesus' name.